But this morning, we're continuing our preaching series, The Upper Room, Five Hours with the Master. For the next few months, we are stepping into the Gospel of John and joining the disciples in the upper room to listen in on Jesus' final words before he is betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, beaten, crucified. Through each sermon that we're going to be doing in this series, we're going to spend time with the Master as he approaches his death, or as Jesus references it in his, in our, his text, our text that we're going to be in this morning, his glory. So with that said, we're going to enter the upper room scene at John 13, 31. So if you would open up your Bibles to John 13, 31, we're going to be reading until John 14, 4. And if you're able, here on campus, watching with us, participating online, please stand as we read from God's word, John 13, 31 to 14, 4. You follow along in your Bible, you can follow on the screen. Here we go. When he was gone, Jesus said, and when he was gone, I mean Judas the betrayer. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This is God's word. You may be seated. God, would you bless the preaching of your word? Would it change our hearts this morning? Amen. I want you to imagine this moment with me. Because as I was reading and studying, I, I was trying to place myself in this scene. It's almost like the air gets sucked out of the room as Judas, the betrayer, is leaving. The disciples are watching him go, and now it's almost as if the darkness of night is starting to creep across the floor. I mean, some of them thought he was heading out to buy more food. I mean, he's in charge of the money after all, but something doesn't feel quite right. Something's off. And what none of the disciples realize in that moment, but Jesus understood at the core of his being, is that this was the beginning of the end. As Judas left, all the players in the story have been set. Everyone, including and especially Jesus, is committed to what was about to happen. In other words, like Jesus says in our text, now is the Son of Man glorified. And what Jesus is about to spend time on here, now that the clock is ticking, is explaining to his disciples everything that's about to happen. Before it happens, he wants to translate for them his death and his resurrection. And it is this focus on Jesus' death and resurrection that will actually carry through every sermon in this series as Jesus lays out not just what's about to happen, but what it means for his disciples then and for us as his disciples now. 
And what you'll feel throughout the entire series, and especially in our text this morning, is this love that Jesus has for his disciples and this fear and this confusion that his disciples have in this moment. Have you ever felt that with God? Afraid and confused about what God is doing in the world? Disconnected, distant, like he doesn't feel really close right now. Well, this morning as we sit in the upper room with the master, we sit among the disciples, this is what they're wrestling with. This confusion that the one that they have left everything for is about to leave them. And Jesus addresses their confusion in our text with these three commands for his new community. He tells them to love one another, to trust the Savior, and to trust the promise. These disciples and their disciples and their disciples and on and on for generations, everyone that forms this new Jesus community is to be marked by love for each other, a present trust in Jesus as God, and a future trust in Jesus' preparation of a place for them in eternity. Love one another, trust the Savior, and trust the promise. Right now, I just want us to start with that first one, with this alternative love one another way of life that Jesus is shaping his disciples with, not just because it is a huge command in the Bible, but because it sets the tone for the rest of Jesus' last words for his disciples. So we start here because this command of Jesus is as fundamental as it is beautiful. Right? It's basic enough for a three-year-old to memorize and yet profound enough for every Christian to struggle with. And let's be honest, right? for every Christian to be a little bit embarrassed by how little we understand it and how little we even practice it sometimes. Three words, easy to read and a lifetime to obey. Love one another. And Jesus gives his new command to his new community. And no, I mean, dazed and confused, these disciples are, are trying to listen to what Jesus is talking to them. He, he actually talks to them about leaving, which we'll get to in a minute. But the, the fog of the disciples is here pierced through with this new command. Look at verse 34. Love, a new command I give you, love one another. What's new about this command is not the command to love, right? The Bible talks about love. What's new is that they are to love each other because of Jesus, Right? Look at verse 34 again. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. They're not just commanded to love, but to love like Jesus loved them. Like Jesus was about to love them. All the way to the cross. Jesus is establishing this new relationship among those who are following him. A relationship that is built on his love for them, fueling their love for each other. Right? A new age is dawning. The kingdom of God has come, and its citizens are marked by love for each other. This is the law for a new way of life. But it is a command that has to be informed by the end of the story. right? After all, the command to love one another as Jesus has loved us is only possible after the gift of his love. right? Jesus doesn't just command us to love. He demonstrates the kind of love he is commanding by dying on the cross for everyone who believes. So the question that comes out of this text early on this morning is, how are we characterized by this kind of love? Where do we see that love expressed in this community at TVC? How do we anticipate and meet each other's needs? Where do we step into conversations with vulnerability so that we actually know how to care for each other and we actually express what we need? 
What are the sacrifices that we've made for each other? Now, I give you some easy ones this morning. The fact that I can't see half your face is a sacrifice that we're doing wearing a mask this entire time. Larry, I see you. Wearing a mask this entire time to love each other. Or even better, I'll call out our production team that doesn't want me to call them out and say they are loving the vulnerable in our community by setting up a live stream so that they can join us this morning. Those are easy ways to love each other. What other ways are we sacrificing for each other to love each other? What other practices in this community demonstrate the sacrificial love that Jesus is commanding here? What would it look like for us to move closer to the church that Jesus is envisioning here? Because... And this is important. Look at verse 35, right? Loving one another isn't just about us as a community. It is also about those who don't know Jesus. Look at what Jesus says. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our love for one another is our witness to God's presence and God's power among us to a world that is not used to a community marked by love, to a community marked by this kind of supernatural love. It is the love for Christians, of Christians for each other that brings, that proclaims the gospel, brings more people to the gospel than any evangelism explosion, evangelism program that you can think of. When we exercise the love that comes directly from God for each other, we proclaim the gospel by the way we live our lives in this community. And the Bible is actually really serious about this new command. Right? This is the mark of the Jesus community the Jesus movement, the kingdom of God. Later, John, who wrote this gospel, actually writes a few shorter letters to his church family. In 1 John 4, 7 through 10, he writes this. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. There's that command again. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love, because the act of love proves that you actually know God. That you are part of the family of God. And what's more, love like he loved us. In First John, it's this, this initiative. He loved us when we didn't love him. And it's sacrificial. He sent his son to die for us. Let me translate that for TVC. I want you to love the annoying person in your life group. I want you to love those of us, including myself here, who sing terribly and flat and off-key. I want you to love the person who is socially awkward. I want you to love the brother or sister who sins, even when they sin against you. That's what love one another means. In other words, John is saying that believing the right things without obeying this command that is at the core of being part of this Jesus movement is hypocrisy, plain and simple. You cannot love God without loving your family in Christ. And as much as for the way this sounds like legalism, there's actually a gospel cycle baked in this very command as well. Right? You see, the more we realize how sinful we are, the more we're able to see just how much Jesus loves us. And the more we see and appreciate his love, the higher his standard for love gets. And then the more we see that standard 
getting higher, the more we realize how self-centered we are and how much we struggle to love one another, and it causes us to run to Jesus. Right? It is humbling because none of us can ever say that we keep this new command of Jesus perfectly, and yet this gospel cycle draws us to Jesus and to each other with the good news of God's grace. Love one another. And just in case you're a little bit confused about this like I was, it doesn't mean love people who aren't Christians any less. It means love your Christian brothers and sisters more. And if that doesn't make sense, let me get really biblical. Don't even compare the two. Right? As Christians, love isn't a zero-sum game. There's just enough for some people. Right? The Bible doesn't measure our love for others against our love for believers. We love one another because of our new identity in Christ as family. And we love the world because of the humility that the gospel generates in us. Right? We love with compassion and empathy, knowing that without Jesus, we too would be without hope. A new command by the master for his people as he approaches the cross. Love one another as I have loved you. Because that's what's going to distinguish you in the world. That's what's going to draw more people to the gospel. And as they're sitting in the room, we nod along with the disciples. Right? This is exciting as Jesus is explaining this. But then as we look around, we see fear and confusion on their faces much more than hope and joy. And if you're wondering why, I want you to watch what Jesus is doing. Or better yet, listen to what he's saying and his second command to trust the Savior. We skipped ahead in this scene to this bold new command to love one another because I wanted to start with the foundational characteristic that Jesus wants to mark his people with. But I want us now to flash back like we're in a movie to when Jesus walks out of the room, or when Judas walks out of the room. The betrayer goes out night. It's the, the text actually says, and it was night, right? To explain how dark this scene is. And Jesus basically says that the plan is being set in motion. In verses 31 to 33, and then again from 36 to 38, we watch as the fog of confusion starts to build up when Jesus explains that everything is being set in motion. This is why the disciples are filled with confusion and fear. Look at verses 31 through 32. When he was gone, talking about Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. That's a lot of glory, right? But here's where Jesus is starting to interpret for the disciples what's about to happen to him, right? This is where Jesus tells us how to understand his suffering, his death, his resurrection. Jesus redefines glory for us here because what he is basically saying in these verses is that his darkest hour, the most difficult moment of his life, as it approaches all the suffering, will be the hour of his glory. If you can see it with eyes of faith. right? Because in the darkness of the cross, the kingdom of God shines through. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Nowhere is that better seen than at the cross. Amen? Amen? Jesus explains here that God will be glorified in all aspects of the cross. From his suffering and death, the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. To his eventual return to heaven, God will glorify the Son in himself. And on top of that, he explains that this glory isn't something that will happen later in the future, but is about to happen right now, at once. So you can see why the disciples are getting all stirred up. Something's about to happen and Jesus is talking about all this glory and they aren't sure what it all means. But Jesus continues. And he steps into two really difficult moments with his disciples. Look at verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. 
you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. There is, there is so much love in Jesus' voice in this moment. My children. You can feel how gentle he is trying to be. You can almost hear him getting choked up. Have you ever had to give like really hard news to someone you loved? Right? <laughs> how hard was it to get through? to not burst into tears. I've done that a few times in my life, and it gets even more difficult the more I love the person I'm speaking to. My children. I'm leaving soon, and I know you want to come with me, but you can't. And while I'm gone, I want you to be shaped by my love. And Peter can't even hear what Jesus is saying in this moment, right? He jumps in, Lord, where are you going? And as the story progresses later on, we realize that Peter's misunderstanding here is not just his misunderstanding. The disciples ask question after question of Jesus in these next few chapters. They're all misunderstanding what he's saying. They are all forgetting what he has taught them the whole time he has been with them. And yet he loves them through that misunderstanding. He loves them through that forgetfulness. And he starts here by loving Peter. He repeats what he says to Peter, where I am going. You cannot follow now, but Peter, you'll follow later. Last week, Pastor Josh explained that eventually Peter does give his life for Jesus. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says later. But Peter doesn't want to wait until later. Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He wants to follow Jesus now, and just to make it clear how far he is willing to go, Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. Yeah, Peter's questions and his declaration here can sound pretty arrogant, but it's not all arrogance. At the core of it, there's a disoriented devotion to Jesus. He doesn't know what to do. Right? And we've all been there, right? We don't really understand what God is doing in the world, but we are devoted to him, and so we make promises, we declare our loyalty, even while we misunderstand his ways in the world. And like he is with Peter, Jesus is compassionate with us. He tells it like it is. Don't make any bones about that. He explains to Peter exactly how his devotion will stumble. But even though Peter will disown him, Jesus will never disown Peter. And for that, I am just so grateful in this text. Right? Because of all the ways that I mess up, all the ways in which my life doesn't reflect the things I say I believe. Maybe this morning you might be thinking about ways you've disowned Jesus as I talk about Peter. Where under pressure you have denied your faith instead of experiencing rejection or maybe even persecution. And this morning I want you and I, to see this exchange with Peter. To see the Jesus who is not surprised. Who is truthful and yet compassionate. And later in the story, remember that Jesus makes a way back for Peter. He makes a way back for us through his cross. The irony in this exchange between Jesus and Peter is the words that Peter uses here. If, if it didn't bring it to mind, Jesus actually used these similar words back in John 10, 11 when he talks about the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. 
Peter has something mixed up in his relationship and devotion to Jesus, right? And so with his question, Jesus clarifies the misunderstanding. Will you really lay down your life for me? I mean, who is really laying down their life for who in this scenario? Not only is Peter not actually ready to lay down his life for Jesus, seen in his denial later, but Jesus has been and continues to be ready to lay down his life for Peter, for all of us. The truly good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Eventually, Peter gets it. Eventually, the disciples get why Jesus did what he did, and that completely changes them. And by the Spirit of God, it completely changes the world. But isn't that just like us too? We're often so slow to learn spiritual truths. Right? We have to rewind the sermon again. We have to reread the chapter in the book. We have to go over and over again the things that we believe. Let me encourage you and myself to keep at it. To keep at it. Pray that God would make the truth not only clear to you, but precious to you. That you would truly be shaped by that truth as the disciples were after Jesus' resurrection. That you would regularly preach the gospel to yourself day in and day out. And what I mean when I say that is that you would actually ask the question of the situations that you're in, what does the gospel have to say about this? What does God say about me and what I am believing about myself in this situation? What does the gospel have to say about the way I reacted to my coworker, to my family member? What are the lies that I am believing and what is the truth of the gospel? Not just walking through the story, but knowing how it applies in every single situation. We all need more of that. Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial sends these shockwaves through Peter and through the disciples, right? Peter doesn't even speak for another four chapters later when the mob is coming to arrest Jesus. But Jesus continues speaking to his disciples, understanding that he's just leveled them with what he said. I am leaving, you can't come with me, and even you, Peter, the rock, will deny me. So he turns back to the group at verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, Believe also in me. Here is why, in the midst of devastating news, Jesus commands them to trust him, to trust the Savior. The bad news has piled up. He's already told them he's going to die, that one of them is going to be a traitor, Judas. Then he tells them that he's going away and that one of them would deny them, Peter. In the Gospel of Luke, he tells them that, the saint, that Satan's going to be working, at, be at work among them. In the Gospel of Matthew, he tells them that eventually all of them will fall away. You can understand why they are reeling in this moment. I mean, imagine what they're thinking and feeling. They have followed Jesus. In a sense, they have burned their boats and their bridges and there's no going back. Right? They have committed their lives to the master. And now he tells them that he is leaving them and they can't come with him yet? That they can't be together anymore? What? For them at this point in their journey, this kind of separation from Jesus is unimaginable just not even on the radar. And Jesus recognizes this in their faces, in their hearts. He speaks right to them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I mean, think about that statement coming from Jesus in this moment, right? The one who's about to die, who the story has already said a couple times is troubled in his heart and his spirit. I mean, it says that about Jesus. He's the one who's comforting them who recognize that his disciples is on the brink, they are, they are on the brink of devastating failure. 
He empathizes with them. Empathizes with them. He tells them to exercise their wills and push back against the tidal wave of trouble that is flooding their hearts. Be brave. Don't let your hearts be troubled. How are we supposed to do that, Jesus? How do we stop feeling like what we're feeling after what you've just told us? Believe. Have faith. The comfort that Jesus gives them here is not just some sentimental pat on the back, right? It's as one commentator says, the comfort of courage and conviction. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because Jesus is rightly identifying that at the core of their troubled hearts, they're experiencing faithlessness. They're struggling with trust. Right? And if we're honest, this is probably at the core of many of our troubled hearts too, right? We struggle because even if we say that we believe that God is sovereign, we aren't living like we believe that God is sovereign and king over all of creation. Don't get me wrong, worry and anxiety are real. The Bible addresses them over and over again with compassion, but it also confronts the worries and the anxieties with truth. The truth that we worry because we struggle to trust that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And God offers us a remedy for our faithful, faithlessness, for our lack of trust. I'll read it from Philippians 4, 6-7. He tells us this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation... By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Believe, Jesus tells us. And the proof of belief that the Bible later explains is prayer. Right? Do you pray like this, TVC? Is your prayer life, despite anxieties and worries, you're bringing them to God? Is your prayer life filled with the peace of God that transcends all understanding because you bring those things to God rather than keep them to yourself thinking that it's some act of doubt that you should bring that to God. No, God says, bring them to me. He, he promises this peace that defies definition. Does your prayer life show that you trust the Savior enough with your worries? I want you to notice another thing about what Jesus says here in verse one. All right, something I don't want you to miss. Because Jesus connects belief in God with belief in himself. And this is a big deal, right? It means that faith in God is inseparable from faith in Jesus. You see, embedded within Jesus' challenge to believe is a deep theological truth. It is a challenge because it is one thing to believe in God, who the disciples have read about, they have entrusted, they have been passed down, the God of the Bible who acted on behalf of his people. It is quite another thing entirely to believe in this Jesus who is sitting in front of them. The Jesus, yes, that they've walked with for years, and they've seen incredible things from, but the same Jesus who's about to be betrayed by one of their own, denied three times by the unspoken number two guy, abandoned, crucified. Jesus' challenge is not here just some nice thing that he's saying. He's calling them to something incredibly difficult. And it is a deeply theological truth because plain as day, Jesus is calling himself God. Right? That's pretty clear. You believe in God, he's trustworthy, well, believe in me. I'm also trustworthy. I am God. Hold on to me because things are about to get really hard. Hold on. And he says that same thing to each of us this morning. Right? Trust me. Believe me. But he says it on the other side of the cross, right? 
right? He tells us to believe while we were in all of our different, different circumstances, difficult circumstances, suffering, frustrating, our hearts troubled on this side of his resurrection. And our, our faith is built up and fortified, strengthened, but not by these Christian one-liners or cliches that we so often hear printed on mugs. They're beautiful, but that's not what strengthens our faith. Our faith is strengthened by a deep understanding and a deep grasp of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and rehearsing that over and over and again and applying that in all of these different ways in our life. Our faith is built up when we believe in Jesus, when we trust the Savior because he went all the way to the cross for us. This is the second command that marks Jesus' community. Trust the Savior. The second or the first, is to love one another. But the third, the final command, is to trust the promise. In 2013, the Philadelphia 76ers traded away their star player. Right? That move marked the beginning of a process started by their GM, their new GM, general manager, Sam Hinkie, to give up small gains now in order to win big later when they got better draft picks. And let me tell you, if you read social media during that time, the fans were struggling with that process because the team was struggling through that process. And over and over again, game after game, as the Sixers struggled, the model started to come up more and more often. Trust the process. They held on through mediocre season after mediocre season, and in the last few years, things have actually started turning around. They've got a young team full of young talent. They've got some prospects. Trust the process. Things don't look good now, and they won't look good for a while, but eventually it's going to pay off. And in some way, this is what Jesus is doing here, right? What you're about to see is going to look like failure, like defeat. Trust what I am telling you. Trust what I'm about to promise you because someday it will all be worth it. Trust the promise. Look at verses two through three. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He tells them to believe him, to trust in him, and now he gives them a promise. I'm coming back. I'm leaving now. I'm getting the place ready, and then I'm coming back for you. And they're upset. They're frustrated. They're confused about the idea of Jesus abandoning them. I mean, they're, they're not worried about future rewards, right? They're troubled over present realizations that things are not going as they thought it would go, that they're losing Jesus. But Jesus promises them and promises us a future reward. But notice what it actually is that he's promising. Right? He's not skirting their issues. He's not going around and saying, okay, whatever you're worried about, let's move on. Look at the promise. He promises them two things. First, that the reason he is leaving is to prepare a place for them at his father's house. And second, that he will come back not just to bring them to that place and just have everybody enjoy themselves, but that they might be with Jesus. His promise to them, his promise to us, is to make it both possible and actual for them to be with him forever. In other words, he makes a way back to God and then retraces his steps so that we can follow that way with him. Trust the promise of the Father's house. Even though you think that you're losing me, Jesus says, you're not. In fact, you're getting more than you ever dreamed of. You're getting me forever. As believers, we must never take our eyes off this promise. We have to take the long view of everything that we are experiencing in the world. 
right? We live in this world. We seek first God's kingdom here and now. We put on full display the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. But the Bible tells us that this earth is not all that there is. There's more. And someday, earth will be transformed because heaven will come down. Someday, heaven will meet earth and Jesus will come back and we will be with him forever. Someday, God will make all of this right, change all of it to bring him glory. And if Jesus went through the horror of the cross, the pain and shame of crucifixion, then we know for sure that he didn't do that for nothing and we can be certain that he is coming back for us to bring us to the place that he paid everything for. Or better yet, that we might enjoy the relationship that he gave everything for. This is the promise. Now, the idea that Jesus is giving here in this promise, the idea of leaving a place to prepare another place and coming back is actually connected to something special in Jesus' time and culture. Right? As one writer explains it, at this time, it was tra tradition for sons who get married to actually go back to their father's house and build onto that house for his wife and his family to come live with them. Right? Eventually, the house grows into this large compound with this center courtyard, common courtyard that everybody got to enjoy. And I don't know if this is what Jesus is thinking, but the Bible does call Jesus the bridegroom and the church his bride. And in heaven, there will be a wedding feast. Maybe this is what's in the disciples' head. Whatever Jesus is communicating here, he is communicating them a promise and a vision of a future heavenly reality with him and with each other. He's promising them presence. Notice what he specifies here about the Father's house too. It has many rooms. And Jesus is not bragging about his house like it's MTV Cribs, 90s reference. What Jesus is saying here is that there's more than enough room for everyone who believes. When I thought about this, I thought about in college, the floor that I lived on, we had this saying, there's always room for one more. So every time you would eat at the dining hall, there was always room for one more. The table got pretty crowded. I mean, it got to the point where we would have someone sit cross-legged in the middle of the table because we wanted to be together. There's always room for one more. This is the motto of the Father's house. There's always room for more that believe. So if the disciples, if we believe that the reason Jesus left is to prepare a place for us, a permanent place in the presence of God, then hear what Jesus is doing. Because holding on to that promise, trusting in that promise, overcomes any doubt, any worry, any anxiety. It overcomes our troubled hearts. So this morning, is that our hope? kind of an unusual question, but do we think about heaven? Not just to escape this world as if you have to daydream about something else, but do we fix our mind on the promise of heaven so that we would be the most earthly good to turn that cliche on its head? We know he is getting everything ready for us. Someday he will come back for us. Are we ready for that day? Do we long for that day? And does that longing make us want to live a life now trusting in Jesus? Trust the promise of the Father's house. But trust also the promise on the way to the Father's house. Look at verse 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. I'm going away. You can't come right now. Someday I'm coming back to bring you to myself. And you know the way. You know how to get there. And 
if you and I were to go back and read through the Gospel of John, we actually realize that by this point, the disciples should know that way, even if they don't realize that they know that way. They know the way because they know Jesus. They know the way because they know Jesus. Throughout the story, Jesus has been speaking of being lifted up, being betrayed, and dying. And now the disciples have to come to grips with what he is saying right now. That this going to the Father is a going that goes through the cross. You know the way because you know me. You know what I've been teaching you. The way, my way, is suffering. It is the way of shame and crucifixion. But don't let that fool you, Jesus says. What did he start with? Saying the word glory a bajillion times. It is also the way of true glory. The way of resurrection. The way of suffering. The way of glory. They know how to follow Jesus because all along he has been showing them the way through his teaching. Trust the promise on the way to the Father's house. The way of suffering. The way of glory. But he only tells them this, notice the order in the text, after he has promised his disciples heaven. Let's be honest, the way of suffering is hard. Even Jesus struggled with it. The way of Jesus is difficult. Narrow is the way that leads to life and few find it, Jesus says. But the promise is real. Let me encourage you again this morning to spend some time this week seriously thinking about heaven. Look through the Bible for references on heaven, on being with God. Reflect on the reality of someday being with Jesus. Why? Because I truly believe that when we think about heaven as Jesus teaches us to do, it comforts us, it gives us courage and conviction to serve and live out our life of faith, to serve Jesus, to serve others. It gives us hope and strength, especially when we don't understand what God is doing in the world. When we don't understand everything that's happening around us. We have his promise. Trust the process. Trust the promise. This is the beginning of the end for Jesus. Or on this side of the cross, this is the beginning of the kingdom of God, right? The beginning of his people, a people he commands to love one another, an alternative community of love made up of people who trust in the Savior, a saved Familia who trust the promise of the Father's house on the way to the Father's house. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 reminds us of this. It says, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. For those of us who believe in Jesus this morning, we know the way. Right? We've been given access to God he promises us eternal life with him, our creator, our king, and our father. But we should know that the way is filled with suffering. That he calls us to believe, to have faith in him, to trust. Because his way is the way of the cross. Don't get it twisted. Resurrection has a prerequisite. You have to die first. But if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear out of this text what Jesus is saying to you, how he is calling to you, how he has called to us, what he's explaining, his death for you, his resurrection for you. There is hope because Jesus died on a cross for your sins. He came back to life three days later so that you might live the life that he created you to live. 
This is our hope. This is why we're even here this morning. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. We would all do well to remember that good news, that gospel, day in and day out, to continue to let it shape us as his alternative community of love for one another, of trust in the only Savior of the world, and of trust in the promise that one day he will, we will get to be with him forever. Everything will be made right again. I want to pray that this week, together, as God sends us into the different places that he's sending us, that we would not only remember the gospel, but we would live out the gospel and apply the gospel in each situation, actually and meaningfully. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for your word. Your word that never comes back empty. And we pray that this morning it would continue to work on our hearts and on our minds. God, if we're honest, some of us came in here like Peter with our gospel on the wrong or in the wrong order. May we rest in the finished work of Christ and from there find our strength to actually serve you. May we reject any thought that we have to earn our relationship with you. May we embrace the reality that you made a way back to yourself because you loved us first. Some of us came into this place with heavy hearts, anxious, worried, much like the disciples in the upper room. Comfort us with your courage, your conviction to believe in you, to believe in Jesus in the midst of our worry. Teach us to love each other. Reveal to us what we are in danger of treasuring more than our love for each other as a church body. Would you open our eyes to moments where you give us the opportunity to trust our Savior, Jesus, this week? Fuel us for kingdom work by trusting the promise of your presence and trusting ourselves to you on the way of suffering as you transform it into the way of glory. We believe in you. We believe in Jesus. But to be honest, like the desperate father says in another story in the gospel, we believe, would you help our unbelief? We need you, Jesus. Amen.